we can all have our internet arguments about gear and like disagree with one another or take a disliking to one's personality but you've got to remember it's all just over the internet at the end of the day we just want to be filmmakers don't we and create amazing beautiful images hello and welcome to another episode of the golden hour podcast brought to you by the polar pro studio i'm your host dave mays and today's guest is andrew reed from the website eoshd.com andrew has been in the industry now for over a decade his blog forum and website has been a huge destination for indie filmmakers photographers and content creators one of the reasons why people are so attracted to andrew reed's blog is the fact that he's so honest about his reviews often people are thinking a lot of the things that Andrew writes in his blogs, even though other people don't talk about it. Now, if you're not familiar, on Twitter, Andrew can be somewhat of a troll, and we talk about that on this podcast, and he addresses some of the issues that people may have with him. Hopefully, you guys get to know Andrew a little bit better through this podcast, but before we get to that conversation, I need to tell you guys about the new products from PolarPro.com. It's iPhone season. The new iPhone 12 and 12 Pro just released, and with those releases come a whole new system from Polar Pro. The Light Chaser mobile package gives you a hand grip and a case for your phone, but in addition to that, it gives you filter threads and all sorts of different accessories that you can put on your phone. The new iPhone 12 Pro Max has a 46% larger sensor inside of it, so you're gonna be getting some incredible photos and videos, and once you start getting into that pro world with things on mobile, you really wanna have the right filters and accessories to get the job done. The exact same variable neutral density filter that they've worked with Peter McKinnon on for real big cameras is being carried down now to this new iPhone 12 line. You can get a VND with mist, you can get a mist filter, which is essentially a diffusion filter, and you can get a variety of other filters that go onto it as well. The new iPhones are really, truly amazing. And if you wanna get the perfect accessory kit for your pro mobile photography or videography setup, then head over to polarpro.com and see the new Light Chaser system. All right, without any further ado, let's listen in on my conversation with Andrew. All right, so uh, we are here today with the infamous Andrew Reed from the infamous <laughs> <laughs> from the website eoshd.com, uh, a good friend of mine and a real joy to have you on this podcast. Um, it's been a long time coming, but we're finally here. We're finally talking. You're all the way yeah. across the world right now. Where where are you? I know you sometimes are in Germany, sometimes you're in London. Where are you right now? Yeah, well, I've just got back from Berlin, so I'm in the countryside in England at the moment. So it's very boring and there's not much to do. So I'm very grateful <laughs> for the attention, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start with the, how we met. We met um, two years ago now, believe it or not. Time flies, but uh, it was at Photokina um, in Amsterdam. Or No, not Amsterdam. It, it was in it Germany. It was in uh, Germany, yeah. So I was uh, checking out the EOS R when that just came out. That's right. And uh, that Canon were letting people in to look at it one by one. Uh -huh. So it was like a fenced off kind of area. And like I was fiddling with the camera thinking, this feels a bit disappointing. <laughs> and then your head appeared at the edge. Yeah. <laughs> big, big head appeared and it just, uh, yeah, I recognized you from the internet. And that was a good trip. It was, I'd love to do more shows like Photokina because it's good to get off the internet and get to, you know, um, be human once in a while and have a beer. 
that kind of thing. Absolutely, and that's what we yeah. did. We we ended up uh, going out with our friend Dan Chung, who at the yeah, time that was, was with, with Adamos. Uh, a lot of bickering and back and forth, but it was <laughs> it was really entertaining to say the least. And uh, Connor was with us as well. We went to a, I think we went to a Japanese restaurant and had some sake and uh, some incredible food, paid mm-hmm. for by Atomos, uh, which was very generous of uh-huh. Dan to pay for all of us. And, uh, and I remember afterwards we went went to see a secondhand <laughs> camera store. Yeah, which... we were just walking around. <laughs> it was probably like midnight uh, in Köln, Germany, and. Uh, uh-huh. It was just we we're just kind of window shopping all these beautiful old camera stores in uh, in that area that you could just look through the windows and see just an endless amount of gear and that's the one thing that you and Dan really connected with is you both have this love mm. of collecting. Uh, oh yeah, gear. yeah. Well, we need to stay away from the shops. We've become uh, lensaholics. Every time we see like an exotic, artistic-looking lens. Uh, we buy it. So we've got enough <laughs> stuff to open our own shop now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, it was it's like a treasure hunt. I love that kind of feeling of going into a, a secondhand store in Europe or in Berlin and just browsing whatever magic treasure they have at that time. And sometimes you can get amazing bargains. Oh, yeah. And sometimes it's full of trash. You just don't know. That's the, <laughs> that's the whole... Um, pleasure of the unknown that adventure going into those shops i love it yeah that's and the beauty Germany's of the, really good for that exactly of, that's what yeah. i was gonna say german engineering i mean some of the best cameras mm-hmm. ever made are made by german uh companies and uh you can find some real treasures in those stores things from that date you know before the world war ii or and mm-hmm. uh, you can find things that were just made by hand there's just such an artistry to the older cameras that seem to have has gone lost on most modern day camera companies but uh we yeah well so that. yeah we can get into that I, I think something like the canon dream lens the f 0.95 mm-hmm. is a thing of beauty and it's such a shame that it's so rare and expensive uh because technically that lens is not the most expensive looking lens but it is the most artistic looking that i've ever used every frame just comes out with so much soul and um yeah it's like i'd love to see a lens like that today but it's very hard to justify isn't it hey we've got this lens it costs two thousand dollars and it's it's soft and blurry (laughs) how would you justify that to shareholders at canon it'd be just a non-starter Nikon tried it with the uh, what was it a fifty five zero point nine five uh, for the yeah, new Z think, mount. Did you play with that? Not yet. No, I've not had a chance. But um, I don't even know if it's out. And it's enormous, isn't it? Yeah. Fuji just did uh, an F one uh, lens. Yeah, I think yeah. It's a fifty, right? For Fuji mount. Yeah, that should be interesting. But I'm sure that all these new lenses, the fast aperture is amazing and all that. But I'm sure they're just too good. Like the charm of the old lenses is not so technically perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how's things with you, Dave, in in LA? Are you living in Orange County now? Have you moved out of the city? No, we. Uh, it's quite the opposite. We, I, because of this new job with Indie Mogul, which is based in Hollywood, I had to move to LA. So we actually moved uh, close to Glendale, which is where the uh, the offices there are. If you're familiar with LA, you would know that but um, I see. 
Yeah, so we're actually we're in a kind of a more suburban area because I do have a family. I got two kids and a wife that stays home, so we needed a, a place near parks and libraries and things like that that was a little bit more family friendly. But um, but it is I'm not living by the ocean anymore like we used to, which was I enjoyed much more than living in the city. <laughs> so, mm. But it is what it is. I guess the beauty of uh, LA, you've got the ocean and you've got the beach and the mountains as well. It's such a varied kind of scenery, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the reasons why Hollywood um, decided to be here because you can kind of have consistent weather and uh, have a lot of variety. You can go to the desert, you can go into the snowy mountains, you can go to the beach, you can have the mm -hmm. city. It kind of does everything in one town. So Awesome. Have you been into Burbank yet? Have you seen Sigma's new... Um, place there they got a nice little shop you can walk into i have been there actually yes uh ryan Connolly, the youtuber from from the channel film riot had an uh -huh. event uh in collaboration with aperture and uh there was a bunch of guys that went to that there's probably probably two or three hundred people that came to the sigma uh office there and i got to see it and uh hang out with ryan and stuff and yeah it's a beautiful place they've got like a nice little set all all ready to go there and <clears throat> you can just cool. ask the people there like hey i want this i want this and they let you try anything out and everything's all it's it's cool it's kind of like uh it's honestly like a booth at like photokina or nab yep. that's just always open <laughs> so. yeah that, and it attracts filmmakers to come and actually uh mingle and to try the uh lenses out in person which is a good idea and i think hot rod camera is a good place to visit as well like yeah, in, ironically, yeah, downtown. yeah, ironically, uh, the fact that you say that, it's interesting. We, we have a good relationship with them and we shot a video at their office, um, not too long ago with, uh, Indie Mogul. So, and th their, their space is only about 10 minutes from the Indie Mogul's, uh, office. So, um, cool. Yeah. Why the hell do I live in, um, Derbyshire? <laughs> <laughs> I think after 10 years in Berlin, I was just kind of missing the countryside. But I think soon I'll be ready to come back to a big city. I, I would love to visit you out there, though. It sounds kind of relaxing. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm surrounded by beautiful scenery and it's um, nice people, family environment. And there are th things I don't miss at all about the cities, especially Berlin and the way it changed over the last 10 years. Yeah, but I do miss some of the people. I miss the, well, I miss my girlfriend. She's in Berlin. And I miss some of the creative people and the the whole uh, creative scene was very special. But it, it's also very transient. So you can get to work with someone for six months. And then just as you're getting into the stride of it, they, they go back to their home country. Oh, okay. Like I, I knew a lot like of you. musicians there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People come and go in a city, and I wish to stick around for longer and to create stuff. That, that would be wonderful. And even better, I wish more young people came out to the countryside and made a base, made like a creative hub in the countryside where they could all like mingle and do stuff. That kind of community has been lost, and I think it's really important that, because filmmaking is such a collaborative uh, thing, isn't it? You can't do it on your own, really. Like, uh, uh, I envy musicians because they can just pick up a guitar and start playing and they can write lyrics all by themselves. Uh, 
they still need the band. They need the chemistry that comes from the other people and the collaborations. But filmmaking, if you really want to push it to the next level, uh, needs so much talent and so much money. Yeah. And I think the great thing about DSLRs when they first came onto the scene was that it bridged the gap between the the professionals who had the resources to to make really cutting edge uh, films and the the talented uh, cinematographers lower down the chain. There's something very special about that coming together. And now, of course, it's kind of splitting back off again. It's got this kind of divide again. Uh, it's not so much about the cost of the equipment. It's about the pros are doing one thing and the up-and-coming grassroots are doing another. And I wish they'd come together and find a a reason to come together. I think DSLRs for a brief moment was a reason for them to join forces on a common project together. Um, those days are kind of over, but we've never had so many interesting cameras out as well. That's true. So pros and cons really. Well, we can get into some nerdy gear talk later, but I want to start off by just talking about you and your history on EOS HD and uh, you mentioned DSLR and all that. I found you years and years ago um, when I guess EOS HD was the most relevant when you were shooting on EOS cameras like the 5D Mark II, the Canon 7D, um, Magic Lantern, all that. I mean, that was later, but um, also... Well, even back then, Dave, it was more actually about the GH2 and the GH1. Right. Yeah, you yeah. were really prominent in that world. In fact, I would say that your website was really a hub for uh, people who were getting into the mirrorless cameras like the GH line and learning how to hack them. The GH2 had this incredible hack. Um, yeah, that was fun, yeah. Can you just tell me about your journey on your website, EOS HD, and how that kind of came to be? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was living in, in uh, Asia, so I was living in Taiwan. And I was kind of looking um, to uh, get into a more creative line of work because at that point I was doing uh, sort of website design. Uh, it was kind of semi-creative, but it was very desk-based. So I kind of persuaded my boss at the time uh, for me to work from home when I was living in Manchester. And then I persuaded him to work from home from Taiwan. Uh -huh. And he said, yes. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, that was uh, just, <laughs> it kind of gave me the freedom to go off and um, to try a new scene. And it was at that time I got into all the up and coming mirrorless cameras like the GH1. But at that point, there was only one camera, uh, literally just one. It was the GH1 or you had the 5D Mark II, which was kind of double the price and much bigger and more expensive and all that. So at that point, I was on DVX user forum quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was filming this quite beautiful stuff, really, that was quite unique. And there was not many people filming Taiwan and Taipei and the Buddhist uh, temples they had there and stuff. And I found that I had a, a real passion for the cinematography side. Um, I've always been more of a, a camera person, more of a cinematographer. Mm. than I have been a full-on storyteller, director kind of guy. So I was getting into that for the first time in my life, really, but I've always had an interest in it. 
And so uh, the website came at that moment, at just the right time with the technology coming out at the time as well. So we had the 5D Mark II uh, just released and just becoming popular, and then the GH1. And from that point, it was like, um, yeah, it just uh, took off, really. Yeah. And Philip Bloom at that time was doing a similar kind of blog. And uh, there was just me and him and a couple of other guys, and that that was it at the start of that. So and now it's very, very different, I'd say. But you have that legacy of, of mm-hmm. that era, and that's really... I mean, that's where I'm from as well. I came from that yeah. time uh, as a professional video person. I, I've always had an interest in video as as a child, but it wasn't until I graduated high school and kind of, you know, went into the college life. And then I found the 5D Mark II right, right when it came out and just fell in love with it, learned how to use a camcorder or not a camcorder. I was shooting on camcorders, mm-hmm. but because of the DSLR, I learned how to shoot manually and understanding depth of field and lenses and all these things. It was just a great yeah, time. It, I would assume I was that's... learning that as well from the first time, maybe 2008. I was yeah. well into my 20s then. And I was like, I didn't even know what an uh, aperture was mm. because everything before that was this integrated uh, camcorder, uh-huh. which you just happened to have a Zoom rocker on it. And that was a, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> about it. So at university, that was what I was using to shoot films there and my early music videos there. And so when it, when all the lenses came along, I had to learn from scratch, really. Yeah. But it was, I remember the first time I saw um, a camcorder screen, just an LCD with a live picture on it. It was so magical. Mm-hmm. When you first see it, when it first came to the market, that was kind of special. And at that point, something lights up in your head and it, and it, it you, you become curious and you want to know if you're good at it or not. And then the GH1 came out, and that was the same thing. It was like, wow, this is completely new technology. Uh, how how uh, can we use it creatively? And uh, isn't it great that it doesn't suddenly cost $10,000? It's so cheap. Everyone can pick <laughs> one up, <laughs> yeah. go to the camera shop, come back, and you've got filmmaking kit. That was a first Mm-hmm. really special moment for me and i would assume that's why the name of the website is EOSHT, right i mean <laughs> that was a yeah that that in hindsight was uh because i thought canon would rock the market for years to come with innovation after innovation yeah they clearly at a very early stage felt they needed to um protect the professional uh, cinema ca- video cameras. There's probably quite a lot of politics involved. Sure. So in hindsight, the name of the website was a mistake. And <laughs> <laughs> But then if you go to specific, like gh1.com or whatever, uh-huh. uh, it's also a mistake because things change so quickly. So I think now I've had the domain name and the website for 10 years, uh, there's no point changing it. People know it. People recognize it. And it, after all, it, EOS HD can stand for anything. So, yeah, as long as people don't uh, immediately think that I'm only about Canon stuff. Sure. Yeah. I think it's kind I of think, taken on its yeah. own brand now that it's been around Hopefully. for so long. 
Yeah. Yeah, I stole Canon's brand and now it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh hindsight, would you say that the five D Mark II, the seven D uh, that kind of stuff was that an accident that it became such a, a mm. filmmaking tool? I think it overall uh, the company uh, didn't have the oversight over it as a whole. I think the stills division thought that now the technology is advanced enough to add live view, we may as well uh, give customers another reason to buy it, and that's uh, video for yeah. journalists and for the internet. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was an accident, but I think some someone at some point afterwards thought, oh, my God, we don't uh, want this to cannibalise an entire department, and we can, quite frankly, make a lot more profit if we charge professionals a lot more money. Mm-hmm. I think what scared them is that professionals started dumping their crappy small chip camcorders and the fixed lenses and they started buying a lot cheaper gear yeah yeah i think that really spooked uh canon what well, yeah i mean that's why we saw the c300 the original c300 which uh and i guess the c100 i think came pretty soon after it and the 1dc which you and i are big fans of um yeah yeah the, that was kind of canon's response to that providing a proper video camera with SDI, with waveforms peaking, built-in NDs, XLR inputs, all those types of things that, you know, videographers were used to having. Um, Yeah, I mean, part of my bitterness towards Canon is um, that they tried to sue me quite early on. So there was a real community around their cameras, the 5D Mark II, uh and you had Canon filmmakers as well. And you had a few other sites like Canon Rumors, and uh, I was doing EOS HD. And they had a, a kind of uh, lawyer moment where they emailed everyone and just said, you're not allowed to do this, guys. You're using our trademark. Stop. <laughs> and at that point, that point, I thought, well, that's kind of ungrateful. It's kind of we're popularizing, building a community around these cameras. And we've got some lawyer coming to us as a thank you it's not very grateful is it (laughs) (laughs) so they tried to shut me down based on using the eos name okay and i just said well i'll change the logo to make it look less like the eos logo and they were kind of fine with that and they said okay carry on but others weren't so lucky like canon filmmakers they got shut down completely wow and then I was willing to give Canon a chance, but they've done a lot of stuff over the last eight years, um, which has been very cynical, very shareholder kind of orientated. Mm. And uh, it's a shame because their cameras are um, pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. Like the C70 is a great camera. Yeah. Do you have, Although, any, do you have yeah. any problems with it? I mean... No EVF, well, I saw your article. But. Yeah, no, no, it, why not? It's so cynical. Just put the damn EVF in the camera. It's <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why wouldn't you have an EVF in a camera that's designed to be handheld? It's like, yeah, I don't get it. But I guess they've got to upsell you all the time to the next thing. I think the C70 was a bit like what the GH5S 
could have been if if Panasonic had stepped away from the traditional stills body mm. and got a bit more creative with proper video features on it, connectivity like yeah. um, XLRs and that kind of thing, well, whilst maintaining the small size. Well, I want to. We'll get back to topical gear related things sure soon, yeah but i do want to say one of the things that's so amazing about your website and why i was a fan even before we met is for your brutal honesty things that we're hearing right now it's it's something that mm. i think you get a bad rap for because people see it as being just too negative or whatever but the yeah. truth is is first off and you and i have talked about this before you know when we when we met first off it's entertaining it's fun it's 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 just like gossip or inter- entertainment type of mm-hmm. stuff. So in that realm, in its own way, it's its own kind of way for people to just kind of have a laugh and enjoy what's going on in the industry. And that's totally fine. Like we're allowed to make jokes and be silly. That's fine. But then also from a realistic standpoint, uh, a lot of people have a lot, you know, I don't want mm-hmm. to say people are getting paid by these companies, but by receiving a product for a review, um, that in of itself is a payment. So there's always yeah. some sort of bias. And I fall into this myself. I review gear full time on Indie Mogul. Um, Panasonic gave me an S5 to review. Mm. So when I am when I receive a product to review, I have to really be as, you know, in in my mind and as unbiased as I can. However, it's never going to be perfectly pure unless I actually go out and purchase the product with my own money. And then it, I have no tie to the company and I can be brutally honest. All yeah, the- I mean, it's got to be a balance, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. um, you can't run a website if you don't have any any cameras to uh, review. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the way to get it uh, quickest and first is to get the pre-production model from a company. And that involves having to maintain relationships with the marketing departments and to show that you're going to be worth their investment and their time. At the same time, if you become too beholden to that, um, I guess the audience, for one, sees through it. Um, And for another thing, it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say dishonest. It's not kind of dishonest. But you become more a kind of, you have to moderate yourself. Yeah. Like uh, whenever you have this relationship, you always have in the back of your mind a friend, like a friend at the company or somebody that you know. And it's very difficult to then go out and be brutally honest because of the friendship. Yeah. That's what I struggle with whenever I get a camera from a, a company like I have the S5 from Panasonic as well at the moment, and it's um, it, it, it's a tricky balance, I'd say. Yeah. At the same time, I try not to be too salty for just um, the sake of it. You have to be truthful, and if if something is not right, there's no point being softly, softly about it. I yeah. think one of the reasons Steve Jobs was so effective at Apple was that whenever something he didn't like came up in the testing, when he was doing the hands-on testing himself of the the products, 
you would go to hell over it, really make a point <laughs> of it. <laughs> That's important. You've got to give honest feedback and very tough feedback. And I find that a lot of people um, are too soft, really. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like it's a tricky balancing act. If you you've got to, if you're running a YouTube channel, you've got to be first. You've got to get the review out first. Yeah, yeah. It's a real because by the time um, you've waited a week, there's a twenty other reviews out. <laughs> I know it moves crazy. so quick. Yeah. <laughs> what I like about the blog actually is. I kind of uh, take the long-term view mm-hmm. and it's like a marathon rather than a race. Yeah. Well, and that's, that takes the pressure off a little of, bit. Some of my favorite articles that you've posted on your blog are, are long-term reviews. It's, you know, six months uh-huh. with the, the one DX Mark three or, you know, my experience with the, the a S, you know, or whatever. And it, even a year later or whatever. Uh, um, I, but then because, um, because you, you are reactive to the industry as well, though, if something's released or, um, mm. if, if you do see something in the, in the industry, that's interesting, you will make an article as quickly as you can, if it's relevant. And if you have some sort of idea or thought behind it, how do you kind of decipher what you're going to write about and whatnot? Is it just things that excite you or things that yeah, frustrate like, you? Like, uh, go for it it's literally i just follow my passion so if something excites me as a a topic i'll write about it immediately Mm. if something's kind of like the sony a7c basically old camera new body it's worse in every way i'm like well i don't really need to write about that then (laughs) it doesn't interest (laughs) Yeah. yeah why would i it's like a complete waste of time (laughs) <laughs> but what what's more interesting is that if a company is doing that kind of thing, you have to call them out for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the A7C is something that satisfies the Asian market for like they they like their small cameras, um, and it's by no means a bad camera, but it's a shockingly unimaginative one, say. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I think uh, if you are a YouTuber or something too, it, it can be attractive because it's small and has a flip screen. But yeah, there are pros and cons to it. I mean, um, but I like the cutting edge. I like it when something's been never done before and it kind of comes out and it's like not too expensive and it's like, wow, this is a complete, uh, to use a cliche, a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after your blog had success, um, the forum on your blog became mm-hmm. really a destination for people who got kicked out of DVX user. <laughs> no, yeah, I think I, I think uh, I kicked you out. <laughs> what, what, <yeah>. but, <laughs> well, I think uh, honestly, you you I understand why you would. Um, <laughs> you want to? I think I might have uh, been crapping on the GH5 or not the GH5, the GH2 or something and the internet's crazy though man like i don't know who anyone is yeah he could be a really nice guy and it's like just because he happens to have a certain opinion i'm like "Uh, don't like that it annoys me so i'll just (laughs) (laughs) 
you're the you're the uh, you're the dictator of your of your website, and you can do whatever you want. So I understand. But uh-huh. the the forum I did get back on, thankfully, and have been um, not as active as I used to be. But it was a very I found it to be a great community of of people who um, just were just like how your blogs are. They're open and honest. Yeah, they're all kind of enthusiasts, really passionate about the uh, subject. And there's a mix of kind of pro filmmakers and artists as well. So it's quite an interesting uh, community. Like it, it sometimes goes down a rabbit hole of just arguing. Well, that's kind of fun as well. It would be boring if everyone just agreed with one another all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. There's been some interesting topics on there. Like the stuff about red was so sensitive and uh, (laughs) underground that I had to hide it, put it in a special place (laughs) for public consumption. (laughs) There there are other things on there as well. It's like... um, wow, this is the inconvenient truth about certain people and the industry. And I have to be very careful. I don't want to get sued. And I don't want to bring a load of trouble that brings the website down. So I have to be a bit careful sometimes with some of the topics that come up on there. Um, at the end of the day, it's it's good to talk about the creative side as well. And people nerd out about cameras but there's always the the creative side, and that's what I'm most kind of yeah. interested in, the combination of the two, really. the uh, There's a great thread that's pinned to the top on anamorphic lenses, and it's very uh, – there's a ton of great resources there, very educational. If you're getting into anamorphic shooting, um, that's like a go-to thread to, get, to look at. Um there's some great camera threads as well. Like obviously the GH five was huge. The XT four was huge. And now the a seven S three is becoming, you know, probably one of the most, it'll probably become the most popular camera in our industry for a while. I would imagine. So, um, and then obviously all the R five, R six stuff from Canon, people are, are talking about it, but (laughs) I've moved on from it. (laughs) So what's your, yeah. I've kind of moved on a, l- a little bit from it because it was becoming so negative, but yeah. uh, deservedly. I mean, what happened was disgraceful. <laughs> like, what, what's your opinion on it, though, Dave? Because sure. it is a good camera in many ways, and it's like, uh, I want to like it. I did, after all, spend 4,000 euros on it. Did you get and the, I wanna you use have the R5? It. Yeah, I've got it. I've paid uh-huh. for it myself. It's sat here. But I'm kind of just um, still sore about what happened. <laughs> I <laughs> think <laughs> obviously on paper, like if you told us five years ago that this was a camera that Canon's going to make in the future on paper, it's like, oh, great. That's that's everything I've always wanted. There it is right there. Um, but unfortunately, due to the overheating, it's just not usable. Um, you know, if you want to shoot in the low quality 4K mode, you can do that. If you want to shoot in the... Uh, 10 bit 1080p mode you can do that but your dollars are not your the majority of my money is going towards the technology and the development of the 8k raw and and the power of that and i can't utilize the strengths of the camera 
and so I'm 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 forced yeah, to use yeah. the weaker the weaker settings. I'm sure Stills uh, shooters photographers feel that way as well because they're spending extra to get these video features. That's true. That they don't use and they don't even work. So yeah, if they made like a R5s for video shooters and an R5 yeah. for photographers, that would that would be the way to go, I think. Because then yeah, the C70 form factor is the way to go. Yeah. They got they got that concept uh, really correct. I'm I'm surprised they didn't release that in a uh, in collaboration with the R5 and R6. I feel like that would have made people shut up a little bit. Yeah, I feel like it. They should have released it at the same time. It feels like we've been led down this path of thinking that the R5 is the answer, when a month later there was the C70. Yeah, which should have been called so, the C100 Mark III, in my opinion. But <laughs> Yeah, it is a replacement for the C100. And the C200 so, for some people. And the C200. I think it will cannibalize a lot of the Cinema EOS cameras, but I think that Canon are moving on from them anyway because they've got the new mounts, the new lenses. Yeah, they want to sell so, those lenses. Yeah, I mean, the perfect, exciting Canon camera for me would have been the EOS R5 full-frame sensor uh, with all the features that it has, quite amazing, in the C70 body with the active cooling. Yeah. That, that and, uh, yeah. yeah, like a, a Panasonic S1H, basically. Yeah. But with the Canon color and the autofocus and the lens mount. Yeah. Um, the S1H is a superb deal. Like, it's... Uh, Netflix approved. It's got an amazing image, and uh, Canon should be offering something like that. The C70 has good dynamic range, uh, but at the end of the day, it's not a full frame camera, is it? It's not got that look. You got that uh, speed booster option now, though, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, they kind of copied Metabones after five years, haven't they? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so. Another aspect of your career has been the uh, the amazing um, color profiles that that you've developed. Um, in particular, there was a profile called uh, Pro Color for Sony cameras, and when the Sony mirrorless cameras came out, the the original A7S and then the A7S Mark II, the A7 III, all these great Alpha cameras, the kind of the number one problem with those cameras. And really the only problem a lot of us had was the color science. And yeah, it was dreadful. And their built-in default, like open the camera up, turn it on and push record, whatever that standard profile was, the highlights would clip, the skin tones were way off. I can't believe that that standard profile, when you turn picture profile off on the original cameras was that bad. It was so yep. ridiculously bad. And you it fixed was the, it. The yeah, the, it was the, that original color science for me, I think, was the um, product of engineers sat in a lab with a doll. So they have, if you imagine like a still life with plastic flowers and like a doll with fake, fake skin, creepy doll. And the, the engineers would sit in this lab nailing the spec for Rec 709 on this kind of still life. And they go to their bosses and say, we're done. We've got the spec perfect. It's really accurate color for for our TV broadcast standard that is well past its sell-by date, like kind of really old. 
And so they just put that in the camera, thinking it's the correct thing to do. They never ask a filmmaker, and they probably never even tested it on a real-life subject, to be honest. So taking the colour out of the lab and putting it in the real world, you get this weird kind of look. It's kind of awful, weird skin tones and lots of clipping and that kind of thing. But thankfully, the good thing about Sony is that they put the extensive, confusing menu options in. And if you have the... There's so many combinations, thousands of combinations of colour gamut combined with gamma curve and many other combinations in that as well. And if you find the exact right one after testing it for a year, you can get a beautiful wide colour gamut, but a contrasty uh, Venice-like colour. So that was my aim with the Sony cameras, and it works really well. So just to get them to look a bit more Canon-like was my aim with with that. And you nailed it because even that first iteration, oh, you, yeah. even that first iteration of it. Uh, was huge and I before we even knew each other I used it on the a6300 I think when you did the maybe the second iteration of it and then the third I, f- I feel like pro color three was my personal favorite and even with the newer cameras I stuck with pro color three that looked to my eye the most pleasing and I told a lot of people about it I got a lot of my friends shooting on it um, there were people who wanted to shoot log still your profiles were better used when you kind of shot in camera but there were ways to kind of tweak it to get a flatter image as well but they were huge um you also did them for canon you did some for uh did you do any for panasonic i don't remember but um, yeah with panasonic it was a different kind of thing because the color controls in the camera are quite limited compared to what sony were, were doing so uh, the, the color out of the box for Panasonic is better, but it still has quite a cold clinical feel to it sometimes. And plus the fact that when you put the file directly into an editor, the uh, color gets clipped and the dynamic range goes down by about two stops. And it's almost like the companies in Japan don't talk to the companies in America who make the software. It's like, why don't this work? <laughs> uh, so it was a lot to stop the highlights from clipping and to, to push the blacks up a bit so you get more dynamic range and then to warm up the skin tones to make them a bit less cold, a bit less kind of clinical. And I'm thinking of relaunching that, actually. Um, oh, well. Yeah, I mean, Panasonic has even more profiles now and you probably could yeah, yeah. get a good one in there. But the Canons in particular... Um, now they've they've been nice to put Canon Log back into things like the USR, the R5, R6. Um, but there was a period of time where, I mean, I guess now still some of the more amateur cameras like the 80D, the 90D, even the 1DX Mark II, they didn't have Canon Log built into it. And you, you fixed that with your own, you know, log, quasi kind of log thing that you did. And somehow it worked. And... Uh, even though it's not technically log. I don't, I don't know how you did all these profiles. Did you buy charts? Did you collaborate with any color people or anything like that? Oh, so I had the Canon 1DC, which always had a beautiful cinematic look for me. So I was trying to get Canon log um, to look like Canon log on that. Sorry, C log to look like Canon log on the 1DC. 
So I literally just shot a load of stuff and matched them by eye to get it as close as possible. So that when you put a LUT on the C log, it would be like putting a LUT on Canon log on the 1DC. So that needs to be relaunched as well, because I'm finding the 10-bit Canon log files on the ESR5 to be an absolute pain to edit. Are really difficult to edit. Like um, the reason Fujifilm go for 10 bit 420 is that your graphics card accelerates it in the editing. And Canon have gone for the 10 bit 422. And I'm really struggling to edit that, even on a pretty high end machine. Like, so I'd like to go back to trying a bit of 8 bit shooting on that camera. And you can't shoot Canon log in 8 bit. So it'd be good if you want smaller, easier to edit files to put C-Log from EOS HD on that camera. See what the difference is in the image. Like, uh, But I've not finished um, making the profile yet. I think uh, probably another week of work to do on it. And uh, then that'll be ready. So, yeah, like as long as it doesn't overheat and burn my studio down in the meantime. <laughs> Okay, so here's the here's the uh, I think the question that most people would have for you if they were in my situation, and I'm I want you to know I'm your friend, so I uh, I support you. But this is I think people really get a bad uh, view on you because a lot of times on Twitter uh, you will call out certain YouTubers, and I I don't know if people catch on to the jokes or if they are taking it too seriously, um, I do think sometimes you can be a bit harsh. Can you address just what, I know a lot of people who are listening to this are probably dying to know. What's going on when you're calling out YouTubers? What's going on when you're having these Twitter fights with people? Why do you choose to do that? And are you actually that person? Are you? I, I think clearly by now people realize that you're a normal person and you're a good dude, and I think so. But, you know, th you've had Twitter battles with Kai W. You've had Twitter battles with Philip Bloom. You've, <laughs> you, you block uh, people uh, sometimes that maybe are mad that you blocked them or whatever. Can you just address that kind of thing that people see you as, especially on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, so I think YouTubers as a group, uh, I have nothing against them. At all. I think it's um, when you're just starting out uh, on YouTube, you need to gain the traffic. You need to gain the attention. If you make a few clickbait videos, then that's one way to do it, I guess. Uh, I kind of come from a position of being quite anti sort of authority, a little bit kind of <laughs> salty about it. So if I feel that someone is a bit too big, a bit too full of themselves, a bit too egotistical, then I like to prod them to see, <laughs> to see what the kind of response is. Uh, so you're you're admitting so, to being a troll. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think part of it's an internet thing, to be honest, mate. Like if it was in a pub. Uh, I don't think these arguments would escalate to the point of sheer mutual hatred like it has done 
on occasions on the internet. And I think the internet is pretty dangerous. It's poisonous. Sometimes I have like uh, people I know in real life in a WhatsApp group. And the WhatsApp group creates tension. I don't know what it is about the internet, but there's always an element of conflict. So, and it takes the face-to-face expression uh, and the tone of voice and the the humour takes all that away and you're left with this raw statement that can be misunderstood or taken the wrong way. But sometimes it is genuine that, genuinely the case that I just don't like the person. (laughs) And I'm just being super honest because I'm not there to make friends with everyone. Uh, If the right people like me, then I'm fine with that. Uh, And if the, if the others uh, don't like me, I'm also fine with that as well. And at the end of the day, I judge people based on their character, how friendly they are like uh, their sense of humour, their values, their morals, their religion, their kind of ethics, Um, and also their creativity. Like if their shooting is standing out and it interests me. What about uh, Gerald Undone? Are you a fan of his? Yeah, definitely, yeah. He's very thorough. The detail that he puts into his reviews is superb. There's something about the medium that is the message on YouTube. So there is more of a kind of buyer's guide style to that kind of yeah. um, side of it, like consumerist kind of side. Yeah. So I'd like to see his films. I'd like to see his music videos and his photography, sure. that kind of thing, is uh, not as prominent as his reviews. But his reviews, he can be just a great reviewer <laughs> and be an ad respect that as well he, he puts some superb information out and he seems like a really top guy as well so, like very friendly so i want to i just want to stick up for so like i'm friends with jordan i've i'm friends with kai uh-huh. I've, I've talked to philip as well <laughs> you're friends with everyone mate because uh... you've got this very open mind to people and i, I kind of <laughs> like that about it. You, i just want to this kind of <laughs> i want to i want to yeah. A lot of these guys, Caleb Pike as well. I'm good friends with him, and I know yep. I've criticized him before. I just want to stick up for him for one second, and because a lot of them aren't going to have this opportunity to talk to you. Uh, being a YouTuber, as you can imagine, it, it's just a it's very hard. It's a ton of work, and sometimes you just got to make a video. You don't really want to, but you got you just got to put something out there. Mm. You got to make the silly YouTuber face because statistically yep. you get, you know, six to 10% more clicks. If you've got the crazy Jared Poland face, um, yep. it's just a fact. And, you know, I've definitely, some of the things that I feel like you've criticized other, other people on I've done myself, uh, just uh-huh. because it's just the nature of the industry. It's a job. And, uh, you know, I just want to say on behalf of a lot of my friends here, uh, you know, they're just doing their best. I totally get where you're coming from. I find it extremely entertaining. If you want to rip me uh, a new one as well, I, I find <laughs> I would, I would engage in it from a sarcastic and fun perspective. I think a lot of people underestimate your uh, British sense of humor, which is, I find extremely in- entertaining. And I know your exchange recently with Kai, was pretty funny. Uh, it, I really enjoyed it. Um, so, but uh, you know, I just want to say yeah. 
like I'm, I'm happy to be on the record and just say that people in real life are a completely different story. Like I'm sure if I actually met these guys face to face, um, it would be different. I think what changes it on the internet is the medium that they're communicating through and the pressure, the commercial side that they're kind of under. And it, it comes across, I'm used to growing up with the BBC. So for me, an advert is kind of crass. Yeah. And kind of <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it gets in the way of the, the message you're trying to, and the authority that you have as an artist. Like, let's take, for example, a musician and you play the drums really well. So you set up a YouTube channel and you're playing the drums on YouTube and everyone loves you. They can appreciate your talent and they can see what you're capable of. But then slowly and slowly it becomes more commercialized because, for example, uh, Bayer Dynamic want you to use a drum mic or to review it and to feature it in the video. And that's where the British point of view like we grew up with the BBC. It's like, why would you do that? It's why would you have an advert every 10 minutes? <laughs> and uh, that's where I'm coming from. So I think if you're What's not used to it, it's shocking and it's crass and it's, it's compromises you. Yeah. If you're an artist, you should be just an artist. But I understand that the reality of the market is that you have to be commercial as well. Otherwise, you can't you can make a living. Yeah, yeah, you can't make a living. Like a lot of my music, music musician friends in Berlin were too far the other way. They were too artist, and they wouldn't compromise it for anything. And at the end, they had to give up because they didn't have the money. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. it, it's a real. I understand where uh, YouTube and clickbait and um, sites like News Shooter. Uh, I understand the pressure that they're under to be commercial, to be friends with all the camera companies, to run people's pet projects on there, to build a network of contacts and friends in the industry. I understand why they need to do that. But sometimes I question the logic of it and, to, and how it comes across to the audience. It's like, are you a commercial magazine like that you get on a, a flight, like an in-flight magazine full of uh, advertorial and featured products and that kind of thing and lifestyle stuff? Yeah. Or are you an artist who wants to move people emotionally? And it's hard to be both. You can't be a salesman and an artist at the same time because the the medium that you need to use is completely different. Yeah. Um. So I've always gone away from the commercial side on EOS HD and not put any advertising on it. No trackers or adverts or banners or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I make my money through my premium content, like the color profiles and the the looks and the guides, the shooter's guides and the anamorphic guide and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I could be a lot richer if I just put Google ads on it. But, <laughs> but then I'd also be a lot more miserable as well. What's the what's the um, 
what are you suggesting to maybe somebody who's listening to this who falls into uh-huh. that? What what would be your um, solution to the things that frustrate you? If if I like if I wanted to change my content to, to not be so commercialized, what are some things that you would say as a solution to that? Well, it's it's tricky because you can't change the platform itself. You can't change how YouTube works. You still need the the YouTube face and the thumbnail and the headline and the the um, the attention grabbing stuff. But there's um, there's a creative way you can kind of work around it, and that's just to be really good. <laughs> to be, to like, just be really good and to be in it for the long term as well, and like uh, to be exciting, outspoken passionate show your feelings and emotions and don't be afraid to criticize uh authority even if it's canon and they're giving you a free camera and it's like if i write a bad thing about this it's like it's over don't be afraid of that absolutely we we interviewed um mr mobile on this podcast and he has a great channel all right he's an incredible tech reviewer and stuff and and he is so good at managing that relationship with those companies where mm-hmm. he's very upfront you know if if you're wanting me to review this product you know you're not allowed to to view the review until it's live uh you can't have any involvement i'm not receiving any payment um you know so he's he's very upfront about it and he communicates that in his videos i think Gerald has done a pretty good job of communicating this camera was given to me, but Sony has not seen this video, nor have they approved yeah. or disapproved this review. The, in my experience, the companies, the camera companies never interfere. They never dictate. They never kind of um, put any pressure on you really to say a certain thing. But what they, it's all in the unspoken relationship and friendship that you're building with these companies. So if um, you have a friend you want to help them, don't you? It's a simple human quality that they're exploiting and they're marketing. They have the whole internet and the YouTubers uh, under the spell of friendship. It's like, if if you're nice to us, we'll give you this. Like a prid quo pro, but unspoken. And uh, we're not going to say you must write good things all the time about it. But we are going to try and make friends with you. And that's what causes the the sort of um, the problem, I think, the way you've got sites like DP Review who are just very sort of soft with their criticism or they they make valid criticism, which I agree with, but it's kind of hidden in amongst the hype and the positivity. That's a easy trap to fall into, I think. Especially if you're enthusiastic about the camera. But DP Review could never have done what um, a user or a buyer or a filmmaker uh, did over the overheating with the EOS R5. Because if you're a customer, you can say whatever the damn hell you like. I think when it comes to a big photographic or video site, it's much harder for them to do that because the relationship with the manufacturers is important. They've got to get the pre-production model 
<laughs> so yeah, my advice to YouTubers <laughs> would be just be very wary of the, the, the friendships and the social network side of the industry. Yeah, and I think um honestly I know you've you've you have criticized Caleb before, but um he has told me that he typically does purchase the products and that's why often his reviews are late his reviews are usually a month or two after the thing comes out and uh i think you know i think that's a good thing i, th I think the one time he he went to hawaii or something and maybe you guys had a twitter battle or something about it but i don't remember but um it is funny how yeah well it's i'm sure i'm sure man if i met him in a pub i'd be friendly to him and would probably get on because we had the same interests yeah, the the internet is just a, a big wine, really, <laughs> yeah. and it's very easy, isn't it, to take a disliking to someone if you don't like their video or whatever and that kind of thing. But Caleb has been doing this for ten years, nearly as long as me, and uh, yeah, we've never really spoken, we've never really been in touch, and I guess he was just doing his own thing, I was doing my own thing, and then at some point he annoyed me. <laughs> through, through, through something that he did. <laughs> well, I mean, here I am. Well, I'm sure he's a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, he he is a very nice guy. Very, uh -huh. he's a family man. He's you know he's yeah, he's good. Cool. I think the the thing is is we're we're in this weird in between right now with these reviews where, um, just like you said, we have so much involvement with the companies. Whereas in the early days of journalism, you had uh you know uh, consumer reports is a, a really popular uh i think it was like a magazine here in the states and they would review uh all sorts of products uh refrigerators laundry machines and then cars as well too and the the rule for them was zero involvement from the company ever literally never ever ever they would purchase every single product and they would do their own thorough reviews and they could care less what the company thinks because there was no involvement whatsoever and they refused yep. it. Even if the company came up to him and said, hey, we'll pay you a million dollars to review this car, their morals were so strict that they would have to say no to any type of bribery or, or influence yeah. from the company. I mean, company. it's not just about morals either. It's about who are you beholden to? Who is pulling the strings? Are you beholden to your audience, your readers, and you just want to give them the honest truth and the, the excitement and the saltiness? Or are you beholden to the manufacturer because you want to do your friend in marketing a favor and you want to be first to the reviews and to get the new cameras that are just coming out, which is very important. So it's like, ah, it's a dilemma. Who do I prioritize? My career as a blogger or a YouTuber? Or do I prioritize my audience, even if the audience might be fickle, it might not respond? So it's like mm, it's a real balance, right? So a lot of a lot of YouTubers, especially n newer people and myself included, um, are ignorant about the laws uh, in the FCC. Oh uh, right, yeah. Which is uh, here in the states. There's there's laws in place on YouTube where you have to acknowledge whether or not you're being paid or or the product was given to you it's actually a law a federal law yeah yeah and most people either aren't aware of it or they just ignore it and don't say anything and youtube doesn't do anything about it they don't enforce it nobody's policing this i think on the mm. higher end of things people may get policed by it 
maybe the AI on YouTube will get smart enough one day to to listen to the audio and determine whether or not it's following the rules or not. But I would imagine it's just too much for them to keep up with. But um, these are things. Yeah, that, I, I imagine it's one of these like unenforceable rules that no one's ever going to uh, pull you up on. But I just hope the audience is smart enough to see when somebody is in it for themselves. Okay, changing topics. Um, <laughs> so I think a, a lot of people see you as, you know, the the blog guy, the, the, the forum, the Twitter guy. What What is it that, like, beyond that, what what do you love? What do you actually enjoy doing as an artist? What are things that cinematography matching the mood to the story and the lights and the atmosphere? Do you shoot natural? Do you shoot projects yeah. uh, freelance? I, I know you've done some really cool stuff with uh, with the uh, Formula One stuff. It seems like you have a, a real passion well, for that. This year, I was going to make all the Formula One events and motorsport in in Europe like uh, Le, Mans, Le Mans and Goodwood Festival Speed, that kind of thing. I was going to make that my project for this year. But because of coronavirus, it all got wiped off the schedule. People weren't allowed to go to sporting events. So after I left Berlin, like uh, it's been a quiet time for me creatively. And I think that shows with the blog a bit. I think it's gone down a little bit. Uh, because in Berlin, I was up to all sorts of things like music videos, and my own kind of mood pieces with the GH4 and that kind of thing. But I need to find a way back into it again. I think um, it's very hard to be like uh, an artist for a long time and to sustain good work. You need your failures. You need your downtime to come back later. Um, but it's, yeah... I think I, I was all set to go off and do something this year and it's all just been wiped out completely by the virus. And uh, I guess it's the same for a lot of people. They had a lot of plans and they had a lot of work and it's all been wiped off the schedule. So, um, yeah, I think next I'm going to travel to Japan and do some cinematography there because I find Asia an, an amazing place in terms of natural light and in terms of eccentric people and characters on the street and at these Buddhist temples, much more interesting than filming a high street in uh, Berlin, which is just full of hipsters and shops. <laughs> that has no, no uh, cinema in it. It's just normal. And uh, I want to go somewhere a bit more kind of otherworldly with amazing and amazing light are these things you want to put on your own youtube channel i know you've you've even explored doing your own reviews you you did one yeah, on yeah. the uh, 1dx i really enjoyed uh doing that and it was like really quick to do a lot less effort actually than a written article and i really enjoyed it <laughs> but um i'm a bit I'm more comfortable as a writer and I prefer to be behind the camera and to shoot. And uh, I think being a TV presenter, which is effectively what YouTuber, what, what YouTube is, is a very different skill. And I take years to learn to do it well. 
I think that's one of the things most people overlook about it is they see the videos and just take it at face value. And there's a lot of skill involved in performing on camera that it, it's a performance. It's an act. You have to play it, whether you're playing yourself or not, you are performing in some aspect. I mean, not everybody's going to have a good day when they shoot a video and you have to pretend like you are. And that in of itself is acting. So I think it's um, like you've done it really well. Like you've got this kind of humorous side that comes across well, and it, it's not forced. It doesn't feel fake. It, you're just being yourself <laughs> on fake. the camera. It's and all it, fake. You... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you had me fooled. No, yeah, I try but to just yeah, be myself it, it, and br break up the information skill, yeah. with, with humor, and uh, and I I think early on I was probably more harsh towards these companies and I have to kind of check myself as well and make sure that I'm still being honest and upfront. I think camera conspiracies, the YouTube channel is, is a riot. Yeah. That guy is hilarious and talk about somebody that, you know, could care less what people think. Um, <laughs> he's done a great job and it's pretty funny. What's the future for you? What's the future for the website? What's the future for things that you want to, you want to do here? Obviously this year, has, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut it down it. tomorrow. I've had enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I think I need to get back to shooting some interesting stuff. My cinematography is so boring here. It's just sheep landscapes. Nothing moves. It's just uh... so. I think next uh, I was looking at YouTube, but I think there's room for both the written in-depth articles yeah and youtube as well well the great thing about your site is you have control over it there's no algorithm built into it other than google search but um as far as your website itself if you have i mean i regularly check your site and i obviously am constantly looking at the forums as well and it's alive it's a it's a living thing and it's yours you own it that's what's so great about having a site i think anybody who's listening to this can be inspired by that create a community on your own platform that isn't relied on clickbait that isn't relied on analytics it's it's really just about gathering a community of people that want to hang out and i think you got you got in early obviously right when the dslr revolution happened and unlike other websites you've been able to keep it relevant throughout the years which is really quite a feat um to behold and uh you know, congratulations on that. Cheers, man. I think, yeah, like, uh, it's, um, it's good to have a community for a start, even if it's a virtual kind of online community. Like, uh, I always remember the Vimeo comments were really polite. Yeah. Compared to like what I get on my Facebook group, which is wall to wall hate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about this um, I right before I interviewed you. I interviewed Levi Allen. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a he's a creator and a really talented filmmaker. And we were talking about Vimeo and how he he had multiple staff picks and uh, that kind of time, you know, the 2010 era when Vimeo was really at its height. Uh, I found that to be a really amazing community because um, people were p posting tests and comparisons and. Uh, you know, we were putting Alexas next to 5Ds and people were getting meticulous about color science and having great conversation in the comments. And then you had people like Levi or other creators who were making these beautiful films 
And because of the staff pick section, you're able to discover these great filmmakers that just have this great talent and ability to make short films that would inspire me to go out and create. And I feel like a lot of that's lost on YouTube. You don't have that, you don't have that underground indie filmmaker crowd. You do have people like Ryan Connolly making films. You have other, you know, even McKinnon will, will sometimes make like a film that's, you know, I'm but it, sure it's kind of, it's still there, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to get the attention somehow. It's always about what camera should I buy? And how do I make my decision? And it's become very consumerist, hasn't it, I guess? Yeah. And YouTube promotes that. If if you are able to get more mm. clicks by talking about something else rather than making a really beautiful piece of work, obviously people click on this other thing more because it's just tempting or whatever. Um, yeah. And then a lot what of these was great so different films get about, lost. Yeah. Like what was so different about Vimeo? Was it the fact that people on there were mostly just filmmakers with a passing side interest in gear? <laughs> I it think it felt so. quite artistic, didn't it? Like kind of. I think if imagine if there was a tab on YouTube called Staff Picks for that, and and there was uh-huh. human selecting going on. For, yeah. Like we found this random obscure person in the middle of Iceland who made this wonderful film. Check it out. That's what was so great about Vimeo was you had these, yep. these humans. That, that's exactly what YouTube needs to do because the front page is completely uh, algorithm-driven, isn't it? A robot selects stuff yeah. based on stats and numbers. And if you go to the trending tab, which is technically all the trending videos, you've got this blend of companies like NBC and ABC paying money to have Jimmy Kimmel on the trending tab. But then you also have a lot of just garbage you know music videos that are just trash and then you've got um you know your standard kind of teenage teen bopper you know youtubers on there which is fine um so but i feel like casey neistat was kind of the best blend of both right i don't i don't know if you ever got into his content but i feel like he did for a while i kind of turned off recently just because um uh, kind of just uh, it was a passing interest for me but I I was entertained for a, a certain amount of time well yeah I mean you gotta admit he's he's a storyteller and he's a very good storyteller and even though he's in the YouTube niche or the genre of YouTube which is kind of a scrappy indie low budget just running gun way to shoot he's still telling great stories and that's at the end of the day what filmmaking is what are some of your favorite cameras right now? I know you're a big uh, yeah. GFX 100 fan. Yeah, the GFX 100 and the Leica SL2. Oh, you like uh, the Leica, huh? Yeah, it's uh, the only camera I feel that really has a soul, kind of in the way you pick it up and the way it's built and the buttons and the, the image and the color science is very Ari Alexa-like. It's... Fantastic tool. What do you use on the SL2? What lenses do you choose to use on it? Uh, well, oh, so much, so adaptable. Like uh, it's good for anamorphic because it has really like um, yeah, it, and the five K is four free aspect ratio on it, so it's practically an anamorphic camera, but with a really high bit rate, ten bit codec, really good log profile on it. Um, you don't expect that from a Leica. So it's kind of unique. And 
the Canon Dream Lens 50mm f0.95 is a thing of beauty on it. But I have too many cameras, and it like my usage is spread between too many cameras. And if, if I if I went to a desert island, I'd probably choose either the SL2 or the um, GFX100, purely because they're mega cutting edge expensive, never been done before. And if I was sort of um, just wanting the best image for the money, I'd pick the S1 or a Panasonic GH5. Yeah. Do you, um, talk about the GFX. Yeah, well, uh, I used it at the Formula One. It was like crazy medium format sports camera, very responsive and mobile to take around the field with me and to focus with the phase detect AF. But also the fact that you can explore the corners of the full frame lenses is quite unique. We had this contacts uh, Zeiss uh, zoom on it and we thought this will never work on medium format, but it looked like film. It was beautiful. So much ex extra character from the lenses and it's never been done before. You could never have a medium format mirrorless camera with a full frame lens on the front. Didn't seem to make sense. And now it suddenly kind of does. Like not everything works, but when it does, it's like the best uh, character, the biggest sensor. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Is it, it's not a true medium format. What where you know medium format film in terms of the the size of the sensor. It's not the same as an. But it's but it's bigger than full frame. So if you get lucky and find some lenses that can resolve that full, you know, I guess they're calling it large format. I don't think they're even calling it medium format because it's just kind of in between full frame and medium format. But um, yeah, I mean, gosh, the colors on it are beautiful. The uh, the video is great. The IBIS seems to be yeah. pretty I mean, decent. The, the full frame market is so crowded. You can go out and get a Sony, a Panasonic, a Canon, a Nikon, anything really. Like, uh, But this is different. You, you're getting the biggest sensor compared to anything else. It's as big as a, you know, um, ARRI large, uh, ARRI 65, I think, the digital version. So that's the size of sensor you're getting. So in that respect, it's uh, a lot cheaper as well because to, to get that in a cinema camera, that size sensor, you're looking at $40,000 from RED. And this is like a lot cheaper than that. So uh, I like the way it handles, the way it's built and the, the stabilization, everything about it is unique what and different. If, um, and then you and I, uh connected on the fact that uh early in my youtube career well past when the 1dc was relevant i chose to shoot on it because for uh dollar for dollar i wanted that canon cinema color science and image but i couldn't afford a c300 mark ii at the time the c100 mark ii was still 1080p and didn't have any pro codecs and for me the 1dc was you know sort of full frame the 4K image looked amazing. It had true log. It had no cutoff on the uh, on the recording. The only thing that I didn't like about it was the fact that it didn't have um, autofocus uh, for video and it didn't have any type of flip screen. But at the time, I had a shooter working with me, Connor, who was great. 
and uh, he, you know, he would just manually focus it. And because he was shooting for me, I didn't necessarily need to see myself. Um, tell me about your journey with the 1DC. I think it came out kind of at the end of the 5D era and into this cinema time period. And that camera was so expensive when it came out, but I was able to pick one up four years ago for $2,300. And then I was able to repurchase another one recently last year, I believe for $1,500. Yeah. It's so, uh, so cheap. Now when it came out, it was $15,000. Then he lowered it to 12. And at the time I was like, well, for the extra money over the one DX, you'd expect them to add peaking. So I was like, this is typical Canon, isn't it? It could not be bothered to add any kind of no interesting pro video, anything. Yeah. yeah, nothing. Just, was, we did have log and uh, that was didn't it. even have a different grip. Like it was literally a one DX body with a $15,000 price tag on it. But at the time when it came out, it was so, it was so revolutionary because I think it was the first 4K DSLR when it came out, even though it was 15K. It's got a beautiful image on it. Even today, it's just got such a filmic look to it. And um, sometimes I, I enjoy the form factor. Like uh, if I was doing a still shoot, I'd bring that definitely. And then just reeling off amazing quality cinema video from it is really good fun. And the cinema EOS cameras like the C200 and stuff are, for me, more kind of work tools where you want to get a job done. Uh, you want to have all the features and reliability on set. But the one DC is more of an artist's kind of tool where you just want to think about the feeling you're getting from that back screen and the lens and absorb yourself in the cinematography. So right now, bang for buck, you know, if, if we're talking about somebody who, who doesn't have a lot of money to spend on a Leica or a GFX, what what do you recommend as kind of the best every man's camera right now uh, in terms of image quality that has that mojo, that has that artistic feeling when you use it, that has that artistic look? Um, what would you point people towards right now? I think in terms of the image by itself, the Panasonic S1 and with the V-Log upgrade is beautiful, really chunky, thick files, really mm. cinematic. Would you go with that over the S5 now? Uh, the S, uh, like the same price now, and the S5 has yeah. more video features. Like the S5 um, is on paper a little bit, actually a little bit better, but I just like the big chunky body of the S1. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't really want a mode dial, to be honest. I don't want it to, to look like um, the G100. I want it to be substantial, professional, but small. A bit like the Sigma FP has cinema written on top and a nice chunky button to switch between <laughs> modes. Yeah. Like, it's small, but it doesn't feel like uh, your mum's camera or so a social media thing so like, you, sorry so you so you say s1 what what would mm -hmm. be your lens package to go along plus, with plus that? the the s1 used is now so cheap <laughs> <laughs> well th that's the, the thing about that's the difference between canon and sony is they hold their value better uh yeah yeah 
like Fuji for some reason don't hold their value very well they tend to go down very cheap as well so the Fuji um, X-H1 is a good buy if you want to go even cheaper that's like $700 on eBay you know what's can you relate to this? I from from the image like when I saw these Fuji cameras when they started doing this retro mm-hmm. kind of aesthetic with their bodies, you would think that that would cause that kind of artistic f- connection and feeling that a Leica gives you, that a Hasselblad gives you, um, mm-hmm. this kind of untangible characteristic about a yeah, camera that but it, co- it, but it doesn't. doesn't. Don't. <laughs> it doesn't. No. Why, it, why it's is like that? a straight jacket. It's kind of like oh, we've got a shutter speed dial. Now it's just taking me longer to change the shutter speed. Yeah. Uh, it's somehow, it, it feels retro for the sake of it, but in a straight jacket way, like very clinical. Yeah. And I've never liked the XT series for that reason to use. And the XH1 is much better because it's not fussy. Yeah. It's just direct and it feels like a rock and it just feels professional do you get that feeling with the gfx 100 yeah definitely that's like a big version of the xh1 and it it it, like for me the the soul of the camera comes from the quality the viewfinder and the screen quality the image and the sensor combined with that no-nonsense approach understanding the artist rather than all these fiddly little buttons and PlayStation-like controls and Sony menus and, like, it's, it just gets in the way. I think what Fuji were trying to do with the X100 is quite nice because yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the retro controls on that kind of work for street photography. But on the X-T4 and the X-T3, it feels kind of redundant, unnecessary, puts the camera in this box and it's like just free me up i don't care if you've just got one dial if i can do everything on that dial really quickly that gives me the results and it gives me the soul of the image directly talking about soul one of the most popular topics on your blog was when the 5d mark iii got hacked with the magic lantern and yep that unleashed this image quality that was capable on that camera that nobody ever imagined and you pair that with the beautiful kind of more kodak film color science of those older 5d cameras with the ability to actually shoot uncompressed raw now straight off of the sensor in full frame it was unheard of it was it changed the whole industry i think it felt like you could yeah it felt like you could dive into the image and it was so deep and even if you pixel peeped it you, you could still feel the cinema quality to it. There was no plastic fakeness there. It's just amazing. And the digital Bolex as well. Yeah, the <laughs> digital Bolex I compared directly at the time on a music video shoot in Berlin, at an old beer factory that was abandoned. And we had both shooting the same kind of music video. And we ended up just using the digital Bolex stuff because there was a scratchy lo-fi look to it. Yeah. The, the global shutter too was just, yeah. Yeah. The, the the image quality coming out the 5D Mark III in RAW was spectacular, but it was modern looking, like modern cinema, like an Alexa. But the 
di- digital Bolex with its CCD sensor and Super 16 lens on it and crazy Kodak colours and its grain and its noise and its lack of rolling shutter was perfect for that project. So it depends on what you're shooting, really. I can't believe that there's no modern alternative to the digital Bolex because that look is completely vanished. It's missing. Where is it? It's, uh, it was so special, man. Like, I'd love to see a camera like that come back. I, I think uh, one of the closest things in the modern era right now is the Komodo, but it's still got that modern uh-huh. aesthetic to it, but it does have a global shutter. The, uh, the posture that you are in when you hold it is similar because it's just a box with a screen on top. So you look down. Um, I don't know if you've had any hands-on time with it. I highly recommend you get a hold of one. Uh, I did a review on it and enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, I think Panasonic are coming out with uh, a similar camera like a very small version of the GH5, basically, like a, a, a Z-cam style thing. Like, I've, I've just seen the rumors. I don't know what exactly it will turn out to be, but it's going to be very small and light. And the Komodo, like, uh, yeah, I'd love to uh, to try it, but my thing is more the mirrorless cameras because I don't like rigging up all the extra bits. Yeah, you you really prefer that mirrorless hybrid kind of camera right why is that that you you prefer to have a camera that can also take stills why why is that so so much of a strong passion for you i kind of because i'm half photographer half cinematographer i think uh if i just have one camera that does both on one shoot then i get to take both mediums away from the shoot with me um nowadays you could always just shoot 8k raw and take your stills from that but it, it's not the same thing. It's like shooting video is different. The technique is different. And the the timing of the shots and the way people behave in front of the camera is different. So I've, I'll always have the dual passion of ph- photography and cinematography. And I want a camera that can do both, really. What's the, what is the ultimate... Uh, would you say the Leica SL2 is the closest true hybrid that you found that you've enjoyed the most? Yeah, it's just beautiful to use and it's beautifully made and it looks beautiful and it does everything that I want it to do. Um, the Panasonic cameras are great, but they have the the Japanese camera feel. Like it's kind of like too many buttons, not minimalist enough. And there's something about the Leica with its cold metal alloy, shiny black kind of, it's beautiful. And the EVF is amazing. And just the the fit and finish and the top screen, the top LCD is just a thing of beauty. I would love for you to do another review on that. I want to put my vote in. I I would love to see another follow-up article on that because you've had some time with it now. The other weird thing is that I found myself enjoying the Fuji X-Pro3 more than the X-T3 and the X-T4, which kind of doesn't really make sense, does it? It's more of a photo camera, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And it's like, but why do I enjoy it more? I can't explain really what it is. Well, there's something that we both also enjoy that we may have similar frustrations about, and that's Olympus. 
I really mm. do enjoy their color science. I enjoy their, the IBIS is the best I've ever used. Um, and even the 4K quality on the EM1 Mark III and the EM1X was totally acceptable, but they kind of dropped the ball on a lot of things. However, I don't know if you saw, but they're supposed to do a ProRes RAW update by the end of the year on the EM1 Mark III. So that's kind of shocking. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I think they're trying to open up new markets now they're under new ownership. And I think they will focus on the video market because there's a lot of customers that they're not tapped into yet. Yeah. People uh, that I think Panasonic has almost moved on. I know they're going to continue to do Micro Four Thirds, but their focus is going to be on full frame. So Olympus has an op- opportunity to take over that Micro Four Thirds GH5 market. I don't know if it needs to continue to exist. I feel like Micro Four Thirds may be over overall uh i don't know what do you think uh i think panasonic should uh obviously keep full frame going it's not been the greatest start especially in terms of lenses but i think if they do move on from micro four thirds and scrap that line of cameras i'd like to see an aps-c line of mirrorless cameras from panasonic with a micro four thirds mount and a micro four thirds crop and i've actually been making uh with a manufacturer in 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 europe some adapters for uh fuji x cameras so you can put your micro four thirds lens like an slr magic 25 0.95 on a fuji x camera so i'm going to be releasing that on the blog and the look is beautiful. A lot of these lenses cover the larger sensor. And the, what was I going to say? The, some of the cinema lenses that are designed for Micro Four Thirds mount are actually Super 35 optics. So they work perfectly on the Fuji cameras and the adapter ring is very thin, but it gives you manual focus and it works. So if Panasonic were going to move on from Micro Four Thirds, I'd like to see uh, a Micro Four Thirds crop mode, but I'd also like to see a new range of Super 35 lenses and uh, a built-in ND filter, Super a bit like the C70, the Canon C70 at the top end. But APS-C is so broad, got so many opportunities there to do cameras at different levels. So if they go, if they choose to go just full frame completely, I think they'll be missing an opportunity with the APS-C camera. But like the thing is though, like the GH5 was so unique, so special. The whole Micro Four Thirds line kind of was different. It was an alternative to full frame. And with the S5, I feel that it's a, a bargain. It's got amazing specs for the money. But it just feels like it's kind of me too. Yeah, like A7 camera. Yeah. It's an alternative. You get more video features built in. The color science is better. Yeah, you got Um, 10 bit. It's a much better deal than the Sony. Yeah. Uh, But But the autofocus is an issue, I think. Yeah, autofocus. Yeah. I think if you buy one of those cameras, you just got to accept the fact that, you know, you're going to want to probably just use vintage lenses and just shoot manual focus anyways and then the the af is pretty good actually for stills but 
because it pulls the sensor at like 240 frames a second in stills mode, so it can focus much quicker than you even notice. But in the video mode, when you drop down to 24 frames a second, that's where phase detect AF is far superior. So I don't understand why Panasonic can't do both in one camera. Yeah. What do you think Canon needs to do moving forward now that you've seen just everything here with the C70 and then the R5 and R6? What what do you want to see from them? Because I think they get a lot of uh, bad press. I mean, it's warranted that the, the cameras are overheating like crazy. What, what do they, they need to do? They need to start do? treating their customers with some respect and get rid of these arrogant reps who think they know everything because they're the sales leader. Uh, it's frustrating because they've got such amazing technology. They are the market leader for a reason. So it's frustrating as hell to get such great technology. And then you've got a showstopper of a problem like the overheating. So that was clearly a big mistake. And they've shown no humility, no apology for it, no kind of response to me. Uh, and then they go and do this weird interview, this PR exercise with Cinema 5D, where they kind of just gloss over it and say, well, if we let, if we let it get too hot, you'll burn your hand. How stupid do they think people are? Just like, get real. And it's it's very frustrating because the camera is otherwise superb and cutting edge and 8K has never been done before in that kind of form factor. What what are... So in terms of the products, though, I think the C70 oh. is a, a real advancement. It's a, kind of a way forward, a new product line, which should help to sell a lot of RF lenses for a start. Um, however, it's like they're going to want a lot more money for the full-frame version that has all the ESR features, like the ESR5 RAW and the 8K and the full-frame sensor. So that's going to be probably like $15,000. And I think they need to do something about customer goodwill because the enthusiast market is a bit fed up with them, to be honest. We've had like eight years of these weird decisions, segmentation of the market, products have been boring. 5D Mark IV, that kind of thing, the crops in 4K. So it's not like I invent all this negativity myself on the blog. I'm just approaching it as, a, uh, as, as another customer. And if they'd listened to me in the first place, they could have saved themselves a lot of money. Yeah, just by listening to people and... I guess what lets them off the hook a little bit is that Canon have got so many people locked into the EF lenses and such a loyal uh, user base. So it kind of lets them off the hook. But one and day... They sell a million like, uh, M50s. <laughs> yeah. They've got such a strong brand, good marketing in that respect. But it glosses over the failings. And one day the failings are going to bite them in the ass. <laughs> because as soon as they um, come into a difficult market situation like with the coronavirus and professionals not wanting to spend much money on a £4,000 camera, they, they're going to start getting the old issues coming up which have been unnoticed or not dealt with due to the success of their sales up to now. 
they've got to establish a new lens mount for a start. And uh, I think the C70 is a good start, but it's again the same old problems, isn't it? It's like, why isn't it as good as the EOS R5 with a full-frame sensor? How much are we going to have to pay for that? What about Nikon? Are they going to go away? Are they going to go out of business, you mm, think? Oh. Well, I think the S the Z, Z6 has done quite well. Um, but I was an early adopter of the Z7, and I spent nearly $4,000 on it. And then it immediately turned into a $2,000 camera on eBay. I was like, oh, oh dear. <laughs> what what happened? Uh, so I sold it at a great loss and got the Z6 because the Z6 was better for video. So uh, that kind of didn't give me a great deal of confidence in Nikon. I like those lenses, though. Those Z lenses are, yeah. are nice and compact. They seem to be pretty good quality. Um, I like the, the, the body of the Z camera, the Z6. I also owned it and used it quite a bit. Um, I feel like it, it works. It works really well with the Canon EF lenses actually as well. <laughs> yeah. So if you put like a fringer adapter on it, uh, you get dual pixel AF performance out of that Z6. So if you just want 4k 24 frames a second with really good autofocus with your Canon lenses, don't get the EOS R, R don't get the normal EOS R and probably not the R6. Just get the Z, Z6. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, so cheap. Yeah, especially now if you get a second hand. I mean, the, the value of it's just gone down like crazy. Yeah. Um, but with that, you know, I unfortunately, because just nobody's really using it, you, you, if you're a professional, like a freelancer or something, I when I was in the freelance world working with a lot of other creators – you were either a Canon shooter or a Sony shooter. And often I would get hired because I owned the 1DC, because I owned some Canon gear, Canon lenses. And I would work with other guys who shot on the C200 or uh, Yeah, 5D. I think cli clients have their own opinions about what gear is good, don't they? Same for Sony. Sony, and I think uh -huh. now that, that goes to the topic of the A7S three, which I've never been a huge Sony fan uh just because of the image quality it was always a little worse than canon in terms of color science i always love the technology and the advancements i think their gm lenses are really good um but i think I now think with the Sig a7s Sigma's, um yes the a7s mark three looks like on paper uh, the perfect camera with no real failings yeah well, the color science is supposed to be a lot better as well, and the menus are supposed to be a lot better, so it cures all the complaints of the previous model, although it took them five years. Uh, but I just think the, the Sigma E-mount lenses are a lot better than the Sony Sony's own ones. I'd always buy a Sigma lens for a Sony A7S Mark III, like especially a 35 f1.2, just beautiful. Mm. And they're making they're making smaller versions of it too, not just the rehoused uh, EF lenses with a yeah. with an E mount. They're actually making some now that are um, a little bit more compact for the E system, which is great. Um, if you, you want to support a company that's family owned and engineering led, out of all the companies, that's Sigma. And you always get a sense with Sony and Canon that the product arises out of a 
strategic corporate plan to satisfy the shareholders, <laughs> which is probably why Canon put 8K on, on the R5, actually, to show that they were opening up a new market. And, and that sure. would, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think we're uh, I think we're at a good point here to end it. I think if anything, we should have you on again uh, if we want to talk more and when new things come out. But uh, is there anything that you would like to leave with our listeners here, uh, people who maybe uh, I think I feel like people now have a good understanding of who you are and why you are the way you are. I, f- I find it entertaining and I I don't take offense to everything. However, sometimes you know you can be a little uh, rough around the edges and that's okay. Everybody can be themselves. A little bit salty and a little bit spiky. Yeah. (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to leave with our listeners here uh, that you want to kind of say out into the ethos of? Yeah. Well, well, uh, I've been doing the blog for like 10 years now. And I think the most satisfying thing about it has been uh, the community and meeting people like you, meeting friends through it and, getting to know other filmmakers and some very good filmmakers as well. So that, that side of it is what it's all about. Really. We can all have our internet arguments about gear and like disagree with one another or take a disliking to one's personality, but you've got to remember it's all just over the internet. So I think uh, people need to leave a little bit of, um, room for the human side and the artistic side as well. Like, uh, I get my fair share of trolls as well. I think part of it is a response to the abuse that I get online. So I don't always have the best sort of goodwill towards the, the internet. So if someone disagrees with me on Twitter, I'm probably just going to tell them to sod off, to be honest. <laughs> or you block them. <laughs> yeah, or just, just block them. But it's it's a weird thing. Like, I'm still trying to get my head around the internet, even after 10 years of writing this blog. And, like, uh, and the fanboys and the fandom that goes on with the camera brands, it, it, it's kind of crazy. But at the end of the day, we just want to be filmmakers, don't we, and create amazing, beautiful images. Yeah, exactly yeah i think that was a great way to close it up andrew thank you so much for your time on the golden hour podcast everybody can find andrew's work on eoshd.com and uh yeah we'll have to have you on again some other time thanks andrew yeah be happy to chat again cheers for that All right, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Reed from EOSHD.com. Would you guys do me a favor? Go over to Twitter, follow me at Dave Mays, as well as Andrew at EOSHD, and let them know that you heard this conversation on the Golden Hour Show. Once again, I would encourage you guys to go check out the Polar Pro website to learn more about the Light Chaser system for the iPhone 12 and 12 Pro. You can go pre-order that now on our website. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro. Pro Studio, and we'll see you next week.